This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. And I'm Dr. Frank Lipman, New York Times bestseller and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the Thorn Podcast. We're really glad you're here. We're excited to talk about some fascinating topics today. We're talking about the gut this week. Frank, what is your favorite food? What's your all-time favorite meal? Well, if I think about my all-time favorite meal for the gut, it's probably the no meal, fasting. Fasting. That would be my all-time favorite meal for the gut. Otherwise, I would say I am a huge fan, and, and maybe because you know you get attached to things you grow up with. So there's certain types of fish that I grew up with, certain types of steak that I grew up with that we don't get here. So I suppose I still think of them as my favorite meals, but maybe because I can't eat them anymore. I don't eat them anymore. Ah. Uh-huh. Well, let's, uh, let's get into the main topic this week, which is inflammation of the gut. Frank, give me a little perspective on this. I know you treat a lot of people with gut problems. or Why do you think gut problems are so common and what does inflammation have to do with it? Well, that's a great question. So I think gut problems are so problem because of our lifestyles, because our generation of doctors have given too many drugs to the next generation or to our generation as well. So many of us have been pumped full of antibiotics, proton pump inhibitors, anti-inflammatories, and other drugs cause imbalances or affect our gut microbiome. And once you start getting a microbiome that's a little bit off whack, that starts creating all sorts of problems, you know, because of a lack of protection of the, the wall, the production of various metabolites, the lack of production of short-chain fatty acids, which are protective. So I think my take on this is a lot of it starts with the microbiome and how our microbiome is affected. And then the consequences of a microbiome that's out of whack, which will lead to whether it's intestinal permeability, inflammation, a lack of short-chain fatty acids or all the above together. So how would you, for listeners that for whom that might be a, a new concept, what would be your definition of the microbiome in a, in a way that, you know, how do you help people understand that if they're not, you know, scientists or microbiologists? Right. So, so to me, the micro, you know, the way I explain it, the microbiome is this collection of the bacteria in and on us. You know, we have bacteria all over our body, in our armpits, our pelvic area, our lungs, our skin. But most of them actually happen to be in our gut. You know, there are more bugs in our gut than cells in our body. So we have this huge organ system in our gut of this collection of bacteria, most of which are playing a very important function in our health. Unfortunately, most of us have this perception of bacteria being bad for us. But actually, most of the bacteria in our gut start off 
being good for us and playing an important function in our body. And once that number decreases or the number of different strains decreases, then we start developing various problems. And it can start with inflammation. It can start with maybe irritable bowel syndrome. It can start with any, you know, there, there are many different consequences, but often I feel the underlying issue is this imbalance of the good and the bad bacteria. I, I hate saying it that way because that's very simplistic, but that is a good way of understanding it. This not enough good bacteria or an overgrowth of bad bacteria or other bugs, because it's not only bacteria there, they're fungi, they're viruses. viruses. Yeah, so it's this collection of organisms which become imbalanced. That's the beginning of problems. You know, that's the way I explain it, but I'd love to hear how you explain it. Well, that's great. I mean, I actually worked my way through college in a microbiology lab. And the concept back then was that there was a handful of potentially harmful bacteria, and we were always on the lookout for them, right? So the work I did in the lab was culturing bacteria. You know, if you had a, somebody with chronic diarrhea, you know, that had just been on a trip, you'd do a stool analysis and you'd look for those bad bacteria, the salmonella, whole concept of typhoid malaria that people could be carrying these bad bacteria, but that's all we look for right? You look for this handful of bacteria, and if they weren't there, then you would tell the person, you know, you're fine. You know, that's expanded a little bit to be able to do a stool analysis based on a sample of what we could grow. So that expanded a little bit, and we'd say, well, you don't have salmonella, but your, your probiotics are low, your lactobacillus is low, your bifidobacteria is low, and maybe you're growing some yeast. And so that was the beginnings of the microbiology studies. But then they found a way to sequence the DNA of all those organisms, including the bacteria, the fungi, the viruses. And that sequencing doesn't require you to be able to take that sample you know, and put it in some kind of test tube and see what you could grow. And all of a sudden, it was like this whole world opened up, which was the same thing that happened when, was it Lowenhoek that discovered the microscope? You know, put a drop of water under that first homemade microscope and suddenly realized that this drop of water is full of all kinds of things that you couldn't see. And that's what we learn, you know, about the microbiome is, you know, instead of thinking, well, either you got bad bugs or you don't, or you've got yeast or you don't. Well, there's actually 40 trillion bacteria in there. And half of them, we still don't have names for. So that's why it's interesting because we've gone from being really specific, you do or do not have these bad bugs to, oh, we've discovered all these bugs to what you just said, which is the only thing that's important is the balance of healthy versus unhealthy. So it's, it seems like a crude concept to say, well, the balance is what's important, but actually that's where the science is going. Right. And diversity is... And diversity. And, you know, many years ago, I used to do poop tests, and then I stopped because I didn't find them that helpful. And I've started doing them a little bit more often. And the common denominator that I do see, because sometimes it can be tricky to read, is if there's poor gut diversity, then there's usually a problem. When people have good gut diversity, that seems to be a protective factor. That's what I'm seeing from this particular poop test. That's one of the few things that seems to be consistent. 
good diversity usually means a better gut. Poor diversity usually means more problems. And by diversity, you mean the variety exactly. of things that you see. So have, in other words, exactly. having lots of different bacteria, different types of bacteria is a good thing. Exactly. Which makes me think a lot of the probiotics, no one really knows, but the more I think about this and the more I, you know, I see patients clinically, in the old days, we used to come up with a probiotic with one or just lactobacillus acidophilus and two or three, maybe four or five strains and, and higher doses. What I've noticed with, and probiotics are tricky and everyone's different. There's no one way, but I'm finding some of these probiotics that have many, many different strains in and maybe at a, a lower dose seem to be as a general rule, a little bit more effective than these probiotics that have a lot of just a few bacteria. I mean, that's a generalization because it doesn't work for everyone. But that seems to be a pattern that I'm seeing. The more diverse bacteria in a probiotic seem, seem to be better. And in fact, I'm not using probiotics as much as I used to, and I'm using more prebiotics and, you know, resistant starch. What's your take? I mean, I just find that in a way, a safer bet, giving people prebiotics and not as many probiotics. And can you explain why? Yeah, well, I do both. I think the prebiotic concept is one that's really taking hold. You know, prebiotic is basically fertilizer. So if the soil in your garden is sterile, then, you know, you can throw lots and lots of seeds in there, which would be the probiotics. And they're not going to do anything if they don't have the right kind of nutrients. So that's how I think about the gut and the prebiotics. The prebiotics are really the nutrients that feed the probiotics. So I, I always do both. Usually with probiotics, I use a mixture. I'll often do either a formula that's got several strains, you know, at least three strains, or I will have people take, say, bacillus coagulans, which right. I think it's got some pretty good data on it. Yeah. But I'll also have them take Saccharomyces boulardii. Yeah. So a lot of times I mix and match, yep. you know, instead of going with like a fixed combination of strains, I'll have people take several different probiotics and I'll have them take a prebiotic formula. And, you know, something that's getting really popular is potato starch. Yeah, I use resistant starch all the time. So that's interesting you say that for you listeners out there, bacillus coagulans is usually in these spore-based probiotics, which sort of getting the rap that, you can use spore-based probiotics for SIBO, for instance, and you shouldn't use probiotics for SIBO, which is whatever. For you listeners out there, there are these general probiotic formulas, and then there's bacillus coagulans and these spore-based probiotics, which are a little bit different. And then there's Saccharomyces boulardii, which is really like a fungus. So you're talking about three completely different formulas they're all called probiotics but they're completely different and yeah i actually often use those three together as well i mean it's yeah and the idea so I, you know we, we were saying we we're going to talk about inflammation the idea i think is that when you've got balance then you've got good bacteria that help dampen all that inflammation so i wonder how do you talk to people about the inflammation that's either a result of the food they're eating or the imbalance of bacteria right. or viruses in their gut. So I always say to people, because you know, the, one of the commonest questions I get asked is what foods are good for inflammation? 
And, you know, my answer is usually it's really what foods are bad for inflammation because it's usually the sugar and starchy foods that are a problem. And then I explain to them that everyone understands prebiotics and probiotics. But what we should be really talking about is these postbiotics or these metabolites of the probiotics, which can be anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory, amongst other things. So you're looking at feeding the right bacteria, the right food to make anti-inflammatory probiotics or metabolites. So if you're feeding the wrong bacteria or the wrong food to the bacteria, you're going to get pro-inflammatory metabolites. So my experience has been, yes, food, sugar, and, and starches are probably the worst thing for you. And create inflammation, but it's really those bacteria that are the ones creating most of the inflammation. So it's feeding those right, getting the right balance there and correcting that microbiome imbalance, which is key to correcting the inflammation in the gut. There's a really interesting study, and I think people might know the brand we're talking about, but they gave a meal from this fast food restaurant that I think was like hash browns and sausage, and they measured this protein that goes up in the body with inflammation is called NF-kappa B. And they found that less than an hour after eating that meal, the NF-kappa B marker of inflammation went sky high and it stayed up for several hours. And then it finally started coming back down. And the people that did the study said, wait a minute, people usually eat every three or four hours. So if they're eating this typical fast food meal and it's kicking off all this inflammation in the body, then they eat again in three or four hours, and the inflammation goes up again. So what happens is they have inflammation all the time. We have this diet that's just producing inflammation. People think, well, inflammation is what I get when I sprain my ankle or have a pneumonia or get a cut and there's inflammation there, but they don't realize that you can have this quiet inflammation that often starts in the gut and spreads throughout the body and it's just a slow burn that's happening all the time. Right. Two points I'd just like to make for our listeners. One is traditional doctors are starting to measure inflammation in the gut now. They measure calprotectin, which is just one inflammatory marker. I mean, I've seen patients who obviously have inflammation in their gut, but their calprotectin level is still normal, which can make sense. And the other thing, and I'd love your take on this, is, you know, so many people when they have, let's say, gut inflammation, they'll get a endoscopy or colonoscopy and they have a biopsy and they come back and they say, okay, you've got Crohn's disease or you've got ulcerative colitis, which are typical inflammatory bowel diseases. And then, you know, once we have that label as a patient in Western medicine, we get given a biologic to treat that inflammation. My experience has been, and I'd love to hear yours, is the inflammation actually being caused by an infection, which goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. And I've seen so many people with ulcerative colitis who've had parasites, or you treat the parasites and the ulcerative colitis, and those changes in the biopsy go away, or Crohn's disease that have had a fungus, or some microbiome imbalance and you treat that and the Crohn's goes away. So the understanding of inflammation is a sign that obviously something is off, but it's not telling us why you have the inflammation. And it's a classic 
model of what we like to say in functional medicine. We like to look for the underlying cause. And my experience has been enough of the time, the underlying cause is actually a bug or some type of microbiome imbalance, which is causing that inflammatory bowel disease. Has that been your experience or, or not really? Yeah, I think, well, the bigger principle here is that the immune system doesn't just blow up for no reason, right? So I always think when there's inflammation, there's something that triggered it. And I think bugs are a big trigger. I also think foods can do it. I think certain toxins can do it. Sometimes a person is ingesting a toxic chemical or a heavy metal or something. So the list that I always go with is food, bugs, toxins, and trauma. And so, you know, trauma could be from taking a ibuprofen, a drug, which traumatizes the lining of the gut. Before we take a break, I just saw a patient who was with 9-11. He was in the World Trade Center and he got out and he's, you know, obviously swallowed a lot of stuff and it was traumatizing. And after that, he started to have bowel problems. I mean, I just saw him recently. So that's a lot of time after. But he specifically got started getting bowel problems after that and uh, none of the doctors thought it was related but here we go trauma and toxins probably because there was a very clear distinction between pre 9-11 for him and post 9-11 for his gut problems very interesting and that's trauma on so many different levels so we need to take a short break now. And when we get back, we'll take some questions from our listeners. Tired of bloating, gas, and other digestive discomfort? Help keep your gut happy and healthy with premium probiotics, digestive enzymes, and other innovative solutions by Thorne to support optimal gut health. One example is Thorne's Floramin Prime Probiotic. This shelf-stable and stomach acid-resistant probiotic blend offers everyday GI and weight management support. Take control of the health of your gut. Visit thorne.com to explore probiotics, digestive enzymes, and other ways to support a happy and healthy gut. That's T-H-O-R-N-E dot com. All right, we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions from the community. Uh, our first question this week comes from a listener who asked, what bacteria are causing gut inflammation? Is it specific bacteria, Frank? No, it's probably, I mean, there, there may be specific bacteria, but I think it's more about how the bacteria work together and then what metabolites these bacteria make. So what are the postbiotics made by the probiotics, which are causing the inflammation? So absolutely some, I'm sure there are some specific bacteria that are causing inflammation, but I think it's a much more complicated factory going on in there. It's not just about one bacteria. It's how they work together, what type of metabolites they're making, which will then cause the inflammation. I would say a kind of a part of the answer, my answer to that is where does this lead? Like, are you trying to identify a bacteria that you're going to kill with an antibiotic? 
or maybe you're going to regulate the bacteria in the gut. So I'm not saying I'm against using things to knock down bad guys. But when I do, I use things that are more gentle, like berberine. We've talked about a lot. Berberine, garlic, oregano, olive leaf. I do use, quote, antimicrobials, but they're always herbal and they're more gentle. So I'm, I don't I'd say I never use antibiotics, but I've gotten to where I use them far less frequently. Yeah, I, I'm, I feel the same way. I use a lot of herbal antimicrobials with great effect. Okay, so the next question from a listener is, what is an example of an anti-inflammatory diet? Well, you know, it sounds like something somebody made up, like an alternative medicine term, but it isn't. This is, there's quite a bit of published research on anti-inflammatory diets, and probably the best known one is the Mediterranean diet. You know, what's the idea of the Mediterranean diet is it's kind of a lot of fish and fresh vegetables, no processed foods, minimal amount of red meat, poultry, things like that. So, you know, the first thing is vegetables, like lots of fresh vegetables, especially green leafies and lots of colorful berries, anything that this got, you know, red, purple, blue, all those colors, whether it's from strawberries, raspberries, blueberries, etc. They're all very similar in their anti-inflammatory properties. The name of those chemicals are polyphenols. And they're well known to be anti-inflammatory. Curcumin, one of the best anti-inflammatory things you can eat. So, you know, curried broccoli, really good anti-inflammatory food. Olive oil, extra virgin olive oil that's really, really green, has that really green kind of tint to it. Very anti-inflammatory. And I would add, taking out the pro-inflammatory foods is even more important. The sugar the starches, gluten. I, I find so many people sensitive to gluten and, and they just take it out without even knowing they're sensitive. They take gluten out of their diet and they feel better. Dairy sometimes too, but gluten in particular. And I know people think gluten, gluten, but and, and we don't even know, is it the gluten, what the gluten is sprayed with? We don't know why, but I do find it's an easy, quick thing to do try taking gluten out of your diet for a week or 10 days and see how you feel and i'd say most people feel better certainly for anybody that's got chronic gut inflammation even if they haven't been diagnosed with crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis uh, i think what you're saying is true i mean cutting out sugar dairy gluten it just seems like it's really an obvious way to go an obvious place to start for most people. Frank, does magnesium help with inflammation in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, although it's traditionally not an anti-inflammatory per se, I, I would say it helps with inflammation. I, I think it helps with a whole host of things from you just calming down the nervous system to, to muscle cramps, to sleep. I mean, I'm a huge fan of magnesium. I've probably, it's one of those key nutrients I probably recommend to almost everyone because I find so many people deficient and so helpful for so many people. So although it's traditionally not an anti-inflammatory, I would assume it does help with inflammation. Yeah, I th think there actually are some studies showing that it helps with our natural anti-inflammatory chemicals that we make in the body. Interesting. Okay, Bob, next question. Is there such a thing as too much anti-inflammatory consumption? Well, I've seen that question come up with regards to fish oil. We know that the omega-3 fatty acids in fish oil actually have 
anti-inflammatory and even immune suppressant properties. You know, when people have got an autoimmune disease or inflammatory gut disorder, we'll often use a much higher dose than what you would normally get from your diet, several grams a day of EPA plus DHA. You know, I've had this discussion with a number of experts, some of whom really believe that you can overdo it with the fish oil. But in my experience, you have to take an awful lot. You know, you'd have to be eating salmon five times a day to really cause that kind of problem. I tend to be on the side of if you're using reasonable amounts, it's hard to cause a problem. Other than fish oil, I don't know of any other food that's going to be, quote, too strong, you know, that's going to have too potent an anti-inflammatory effect. I mean, the the anti-inflammatory effects that you get of foods are nothing like what you get from a drug. Right, and, and when you think of it, Vescapa, Vescapa, however you pronounce it, the, the pharmaceutical version of fish right. oil, is, ba- it's strong. is ba- yeah, it's a basically a big, strong dose of fish oil. And you don't see immunosuppression from that. And the Inuit, the Greenland Inuit, eat huge amounts of EPA and DHA, and you don't see them having an inordinate number of infections or anything like that. So I think when we're talking about foods, it's really hard to overdo it. Certainly with drugs, you can overdo it. So this question keeps coming up. We talked about it. Frank, should I take a probiotic or prebiotic or both for gut inflammation? And if so, what's the best strain? Yeah, I would say both. I mean, I always give prebiotics now more and more. I give them in terms, I, I tell people to eat the stalks and stems, don't cut them off because that's the fiber that you're not digesting and that feed the good bacteria. I'm using resistant starch a lot, like potato starch a lot more often now. And I do use probiotics, but you know, probiotics are trickier. I don't think there's one best strain of probiotic for everyone. You know, what I'm finding is different people seem to respond to different probiotics. Prebiotics are generally good for most people, but it's probably a good idea to take a prebiotic with a probiotic. I agree. I think both is always better. Okay, so I have a question for you, and that is, what is the strongest natural anti-inflammatory? Natural anti-inflammatory? Well, I would either say it's a toss-up between curcumin from turmeric or fish oil, and I usually use both. So those, I mean, if I had to to pick my top contenders, it would be those two. And I would add quercetin to that. Yeah, quercetin as well. I, absolutely. And I I take all of those. So, you know, I hedge my bets. Right. And I'm, you know, interesting. I'm going for my second vaccine now. And I've been loading up on quercetin. I've been telling everyone to load up on some quercetin before. And we'll see if it helps. Uh, well, I did that. And I had zero reaction to my second vaccine. Okay, good. So that's a, you know, that's a a idea I want to plant in your head when you get your, when you get your vaccine is like, I, I didn't, I kept even thinking, okay, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And I, you know, never got a fever or headache, anything like that. I was fine. I've I've heard that same feedback from people I've told to take more quercetin. So hopefully, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think we have time for one last question. A reader says this, I'm bloated after everything. But I've been tested for SIBO, celiac disease, lactose intolerance, H. pylori. What's going on here? And how can I support my gut? And, and okay. I got to say this. Common. I, this is a familiar yeah, scenario. Very, very common. I hear this. Yeah. So, you know, people need to understand that the SIBO test is testing for very specific bugs and the gases they release. So just because you're negative for SIBO 
does not mean you're negative for a general dysbiosis or imbalance. So you're negative with those specific organisms that are causing you know, that particular gas. So to me, when, when someone is bloated, they're either eating a food that they're not digesting properly, they don't have enough, especially if they're older, hydrochloric acid or maybe digestive enzymes. And then once again, there's this imbalance in the gut where I use antimicrobials. So I do for something like this, which is very, very common, I'll put people on some type of elimination diet where I'll take sugar and gluten and dairy out of their diets. Depending on their age and symptoms, I'll sometimes tell them to have some bitters before they eat. And then I'll use antimicrobials like berberine, olive leaf extract, oregano, ore yeah, oregano oil. So that's a very common problem. And it, you know, once again, it's what is causing that? It's usually because of food that you're not digesting properly or you're not making enough digestive juices, or you've got this imbalance in, in, in the good and the bad bacteria. So you need to just try to work out what it is. And it's actually usually quite easy and quite easy to treat too. Yep, I agree. I think sometimes the standard tests just aren't good enough. And it's always worth trying things. I think in mainstream medicine, the, the lack of digestive enzymes, what we call brush border enzymes, and the lack of hydrochloric acid, it's underappreciated. And I also think people need to understand that when they take a supplement of a digestive enzyme, you really have to work hard to overdo it. I mean, the typical dose that's on the label is one to two caps, but I often have people take four to six me, caps. Me too, exactly. Yep. Yeah, so you can really push the dose. Yep. All right, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in. Thank you, Frank, for podcasting. It's always a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thorn Research. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.